You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 115 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, we are going to listen to biologist Rupert Sheldrake and journalist Mark Vernon talk about the sun and the possibility of the sun being conscious. But before we get into this talk, I want to play a sample from episode 65 where I had author Gregory Sams on as a guest. Gregory has written a book called The Son of God, where he argues the point that the sun is conscious. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to naturalbornalchemist.com and look for episode 65. Having had a life-changing experience when I was... 17 years old in Berkeley, California, staring into the sun for about 20 minutes on top of a hill doing my first uh, psychedelic experience. And in that, in that experience, there was an exchange, and I, re- I realized, hey, this isn't just a ball of hot stuff. It's plasma, not gas. But I really know there's, there's a being there. There's something there. And... That was something I carried with me all my life, but I never did anything with it until I started to write a book and say, hey, I'm going to write a book about this. I'm not sure what I'm going to say, but I'll start. And that's uh, one way to find out what you're going to say. And what amazed me when I was that when I looked into the science and started to see what solar scientists and cosmologists knew about sun and its product light, what amazed me was that I found that all this evidence which supports the idea. So if you're looking at this neutrally and you have this information about the sun and stars and how they behave and what they do, and without any Christian prejudice drummed into you, you think, okay, now, is this the sort of behavior that a rock or something accidental you know, would be doing? Or is this the sort of behavior that implies consciousness and intelligence? And it falls down heavily on the side of consciousness and intelligence. Uh, Without that, it's very hard to figure out how stars, how our sun behaves. So that was, um, there was a lot of discovery involved in writing the book. It wasn't just, uh, there was one chapter that really makes that point. There's a few chapters that lead up to it to soften one up for the experience. Um, and then the rest of the book is, well, what, well, you know, what are the implications? What does this mean about other, the other stars, galaxies, our solar system, and most importantly, light itself? Every time you hear about religion, you, you're connected with light. People like candles. The, the main product of the sun is light. That light is absorbed into plants and stored as energy when we eat those plants that energy which is we're recycling sunlight is the energy of life that's what gives us that's what i'm using now when i'm speaking to you when i'm thinking when i'm alive that and that's what our whole body is designed to support the recycling of sunlight so as i'm saying once you recognize the suns and stars 
are an, are an intelligent life form, everything else takes on a really interesting character. <laughs> Angels are beings of light. You know, you don't... Light itself doesn't need a place to be. It doesn't experience time. The light that comes from the sun to earth, we might age eight and a half minutes while it's completing that process, but the light arrives at the moment it left. Because when you travel at the speed of light, there is no time. If you go faster than light, you go backwards in time and Various science fiction books use that. The interstellar movie used that. But as you approach the speed of light, time slows down. At the speed of light, there is no time. So everything happens in the moment. Uh, When you absorb, when you're looking at stars, the light coming from those stars might have traveled trillions of miles across space to get to your eyeball, but as far as it's concerned, it arrives the same moment it left. It's got just as much energy as it had when it left that star. So that's um, light. It's very hard stuff for us to comprehend, which is why I think it was Richard Feynman said, anybody who says they understand quantum mechanics doesn't understand quantum mechanics because the more you look into the nature of light, the more inexplicable it is. Go to gregorysams.com if you want to check out some more of his work. And now let's uh, continue this theme of the consciousness of the sun and jump straight into Rupert Sheldrake and Mark Vernon's discussion, Is the Sun Conscious? Hello, I'm Rupert Sheldrake. I'm here with Mark Vernon. This is another one in our Science Set Free podcast series. And today we're talking about the sun. Hi, Rupert. Hi, Mark. So, Mark, I've been interested for a long time in the question of, is the sun conscious? Um, If we move towards a panpsychist or animist view of nature, which a surprisingly large number of people are doing at the moment, going beyond materialism, seeing which sees matter as unconscious, um, if we see self-organizing systems as having some kind of mind, even electrons, um, philosophers like Galen Strawson and Thomas Nagel are perfectly happy to consider uh, the possibility of electrons having a kind of mind or atoms. Uh, um, and Alfred North Whitehead discussed this at some length. This is surprisingly a, a debated topic at the moment. <coughs> If we look at that, and then we say, well, all right, let's look at big things that are self-organising, not just small things. We enter an area of debate which is not much explored in the modern world. And what I think focuses it best is the sun, because the sun's undoubtedly a self-organising system. Um, It's highly active. It has a tremendous amount of electrical and magnetic activity uh, in in it and on its surface. Um... We normally think of the complex electromagnetic activity of our brains as being the interface between the mind and the brain and the body. Um, The sun's got more complex electromagnetic activity. Um, So all this raises the question, could the sun be conscious? And in the past, 
many cultures have taken it for granted that the sun's conscious. I mean, after all, it's a god or a goddess in many cultures. In Japan, it's a goddess. Um, the moon is a god and the sun's a goddess for the Japanese. In southern Europe, in the mythology of Greece and Rome, the sun was a god and the, the moon was a goddess. In northern European mythologies, like in the Baltic uh, area, um, the sun was a goddess. And it's interesting that in northern European languages, like German, um, the sun is feminine, disana, and in southern European languages, like French, Latin-based languages, the sun's masculine, le soleil. Um, so I think it's clear that people in the past thought of the sun as a god or a goddess or a living being, um, some kind of conscious being with whom... Uh, we're related. And in India, there's a whole variety of practices relating to the sun. One of them is the sun prostration, the yoga exercise, which I've done myself for more than 40 years, Surya Namaskar. Another is the Gayatri Mantra, um, a mantra which invokes the illuminating light of the sun to, to help our meditation. Um, may the glorious splendor of the sun the divine splendor of the sun illuminate our meditation. Um, so, and then, of course, if the sun is conscious, then probably so are all the other stars, and then maybe the whole galaxy is conscious, and this leads us into a completely different sense of consciousness or mind in nature by thinking about parts of nature that are bigger than us rather than the usual debate is about things that are much smaller than us. So, I know that you've been thinking about Egypt a lot and the Egyptian religion. I wonder what your take on this is in relation to the sun and what the Egyptians thought of the sun. Yeah, well, it's it's a very fascinating and quite complex area in a way. I think that um, Egyptian religion was very, very influenced by the sun for the very obvious but immensely powerful reason that ancient Egypt civilization was stretched up and down the Nile, which is pretty accurately north-south, which meant that every day the sun rose in the east, you saw it rising, and then you saw it setting in the west. Um, so you were very conscious of the difference between the sunny day and the night. I think in ancient Egypt you're also very conscious of the difference between life and death, because as you immediately see if you go to Egypt even today, um, the life of the Nile ends really very abruptly and turns into desert, even within a few metres. Um, so that uh, barrier between life and death was as keenly experienced as the barrier between night and day. Um, and I think that a lot of ancient Egyptian religion um, was about exploring how um, that very physical experience, sort of of every day and night, um, could be used as a way of exploring um, what they... Well, what I think what can be called a sort of participative consciousness in nature. We've used this expression before. I picked it up from Owen Barfield, the inkling, um, and his idea that, um, say, around 1000 BC at least and before, human beings' experience of life was um, not the same as ours. Um, there weren't the divisions between the inner and the outer, between the mortal and the immortal, um, between subject and object. 
um, but that people experience life as a kind of constant flow through all these things. Mm. So, um, for example, in ancient Egypt, um, it's very common to uh, for people to talk about uh, their life being in their limbs. Um, they don't actually have a whole sense of the human body. Um, it's much more fragmented than that for us. There's no sense of I, for example. And um, I think that one way of understanding that is that your sense of integration actually came from the outside in rather than from the inside out as we tend to think of it that you're belonging in society and hence you know the very powerful uh, shaping hierarchy of ancient Egyptian religion um, it wasn't oppressive I think it gave people a sense of set self um, and as it were held things together um, in a psychological sense as well as in a sociological sense um, but also I think your involvement with nature your participation in nature the animistic side um, was very much um, knitted together with your sense of self. So you experienced um, the gods, like, for example, the sun, not just in the physical warmth on your face, um, but also as an engagement with the god. Um, uh, there wasn't um, much like today we might have a thought about the sun, you know, how it's uplifting or it, um, it, it warms the soul as well as the body. Um, but I think this would be experienced directly as um, a spiritual warming um, and so the sun becomes associated with things which is still associated now with with goodness and light, um, those kind of qualities. Um, so it's very interesting how we can uh, remake or reconnect or sort of rediscover um, this sense that um, the cosmos and the sun in particular might be um, a living entity as well as a physical entity. When we have this very powerful sense of me and not me the inner the outer the dead and the the alive um which has value I and mean, the the, the, tr the difficulty here which barfield really recognizes i think is that really has value so for example one of the things about ancient egyptian society was that it was very very structured um and if you were born pharaoh then you would go through the initiation rites as it were and and even start to call the son your father and know the son's body as your body as the litany of ra puts it um, but if you were um, lower down the, the chain, um, certainly in the Old Kingdom, that's where you lived and died. Um, now that begins to shift through into the New Kingdom. There's a, there's a kind of democratising of these rites that I think people went through in order to know this identification with the gods and with the sun in particular. Um, but for us, another couple of thousand years on, um, we have the advantages of a very powerful sense of the individual which, of course, comes with scientific investigation, you know, to, mm -hmm. to be able to take a step back and, and, uh, and uh, objectify the world um, is a, a very important shift in consciousness that enables science. But how we bridge back again to what Barfield called final participation, I think, is, uh, is the kind of the, the nub of the problem. And I guess when people hear you talk about is the sun conscious, part of the shock at that is... That seems to throw everything I feel about the way the world should be into question, or does it open up a completely new possibility? Mm. That kind of experience, you know, that, that, that this, this thought uh, can have, mm. because in a way it's uh, doing nothing less than trying to reconnect or remake. I think it's got to be remake. You can't go back, I don't think, um, but to try and discover a whole new sense of what it might be to be alive, in fact. Yes, well, I think so. I mean, the sun, if the sun's conscious, then the solar system is like the sun's body. Um, all the planets are obviously orbiting around the sun. And within it, there's a whole area filled with the solar wind, which is 
um, not just the light of the sun, but a stream of charged particles that the sun's giving off the whole time. When there's a solar flare or a coronal mass ejection, there's more of them. And when one of those hits the Earth, or one of these increased flux of the solar wind, then we get lots more lightning storms and we get a much more intense northern and southern light. So they affect the Earth and, and the whole outer membranes of the Earth. And round the entire solar system um, is a kind of membrane called the heliopause, which is where the galactic wind, which is like the solar wind, but going through the whole arm of the galaxy, it's the whole thing at a higher level, as it were, um, uh, meets the solar wind. And where they interact, there's a kind of membrane around the whole solar system. So within that membrane is, as it were, the body of the sun, the extended body of the sun, with which the sun is primarily concerned. Now, it may be that the sun actually knows what's going on within the solar system, because um, how would it know? Well, um, it may be that its mind is sensitive to electromagnetic fields. I mean, our minds are. We see by bringing electromagnetic fields into focus, and uh, when we look at a tree out of the window, I mean, the, the light from the tree is an electromagnetic vibration. It's condensed by the lens in my eye into a two-dimensional image, and changes happen in the brain, and I construct this three-dimensional picture image of the tree, which I project out to where the tree is. Um, there's a sense in which my eyes and my brain and my mind are bringing to consciousness the electromagnetic field. It may be that the sun can do that throughout the whole solar system. And if that's the case, then it would know everything that's happening electromagnetically. That would include what's going on inside your brain and mind, because that's an electromagnetic pattern. It could be that it's sort of omniscient within the solar system, because everything within the solar system is interacting both with its electromagnetic field and its gravitational field. So... Um, what I think this does is gives us a sense that our lives are part of a much greater conscious whole. Um, but that's not the end of it, because the sun is like a cell in the organism of the galaxy, and the galaxy may have a galactic mind, and then there are clusters of galaxies, they may have galactic cluster minds, and then there's the entire cosmos, and uh, a cosmic mind. Um, and within we're within all those. I, I think the normal view of, of that we have is that we're sort of mental life is on the inside and um, if God or other minds exist there's some kind of external beings but I think by starting with the sun um, and thinking about this from the sun we get the we feel how we're within the body of the sun we're in something much larger than ourselves of course we're within the body of the earth that's the most immediate reality for us and within the Earth's field, the magnetic field, within its atmosphere, within the Earth, very much within its gravitational field. Um, so it helps us to see that we're actually in larger systems than ourselves, and we're in the cosmos. And, of course, in a traditional religious view, we're in God. I mean, God's not out there. We're in God, and God's are far greater and more inclusive than us. So I think as a way of thinking about being part of a larger whole, which is conscious, in fact a series of larger wholes, thinking about the consciousness of the sun is very helpful. So I wonder whether 
this way of thinking about it might be useful. Um, and this is taking a lead from Plato, because I think um, Plato tried to remake a lot of ancient Egyptian insights. Um, broadly, the story is that after Socrates' death, he um, travelled around the Mediterranean, um, really very disillusioned, I think, because of what Athens had done to Socrates. And there's a lot of evidence, um, both in his own texts and also otherwise, that he went to Egypt and engaged very profoundly with Egyptian religion, but felt that it needs to be remade for a new time. And I think one of the things which he did was um, he developed this notion of the difference between matter and mind. Um, now, I don't think he was a dualist in the way that, and again, a couple of thousand years on, we've become, we've developed the sense that matter and mind are really very radically different. And that's sort of quite a challenge for us when it comes to understanding consciousness and so on, of course, which we've talked about. Um, but I think that what he felt was that matter is a kind of manifestation of mind, um, that um, much like you might say architecture is frozen music, um, when you go into a beautiful building, as it were, you almost hear the building as well as see the building physically in front of you. Um, so too he felt that matter um, was a kind of tangible ma manifestation of, of mind. In philosophy it's the idea known as idealism. And I think that he picked up the idea in ancient Egypt um, that the sun disk is itself just a manifestation of the sun god, of Ra, the sun god. Um, and that this distinction helped him to uh, both approach the natural world, as it were, in a more scientific way, a proto-scientific way, you might say. So it could be sort of studied, um, but at the same time could be participated in because, um, as it were, one of the blessings of the sun um, in its warmth and in its light, metaphorically and physically, um, can be understood as... Um, a tangible manifestation of the blessings of the sun god. Um, so when you say um, that we're, we are, we're physically in the solar system, in the sun's body, um, maybe that's just a manifestation of um, uh, being in um, a divine body. Um, and of course, you know, even in Christianity, the sun is likened to God. Jesus Christ um, can be likened to Apollo, for example, um, who's the sun god in, in, in Greece. In fact, I go to Southwark Cathedral and um, right at the east end of Southwark Cathedral there's an enormous stained glass window with a young Christ. Um, and whenever you see a young Christ in a cathedral, you know it's harking back to the Apollo line of identification with Christ as opposed to the Zeus line when he has a beard or the emperor having a beard. Mm. Um, so that's still alive, um, that link between Christ and sun. Um, and I quite like this idea that... Um, the material is just a manifestation of the larger consciousness, the mind. Um, I think it, one more, one more thought, I think it gets around some of the complications with things like panpsychism. Because my sense of panpsychism is that Galen Strawson and others are trying to stretch a basically materialist framework to the limit. And at the limit of panpsychism, it just sort of falls apart. If you've you know you've read Strawson, I know, and um, I always get that sense that wait a minute, I'm not, is this still materialism or is it idealism? You know, what is consciousness primary or is them? You know, it, it all feels like it unravels. Yes. Um, because and in a way, it's doing materialism a service because it's pushing it to a limit and saying actually the framework doesn't work. Um, but I like this idealism where mind is, as it were, um, at least the logically primary thing you might say. That then 
has this manifestation in material forms, much like we're, you know, we're material manifestations of minds as well, of course. You know, and as we get yes. older, our, the lines of our face show our soul, you might say. So does that model fit in with... Uh, well, what I think so, yes. I mean, I think the, the this idea of, of the relation of God, the sun, Ra, and the sun disk, I don't quite get why the sun can't just be Ra, why it's got to be a manifestation of Ra. Um, uh, but I do, in the Gayatri Mantra, there's the divine light shines through the sun. The sun is not the ultimate God. It's a channel through which the light of the ultimate God comes. Yeah, I, I think that would be a way of putting it. It sort of gives depth to the material form, yes. as it were. And actually there's a hymn that I found myself singing the other day. I was at a service where I've forgotten the, how the hymn begins, but it's talking of God as the son of sons, S-U-N of S-U-N-S, that God is like... That would be a bit like your thing of Ra, that God is... the the, the, the ultimate light which shines through all suns all stars including ours but the one that's most relevant to us is our own because it's by far the dominant presence of all the stars the one that affects us most um, so it's not saying the sun is God but it's saying that God shine, the light of God shines through the sun and the divine presence is in the sun as indeed in everything in nature, but the sun, it's in a particularly spectacular form. And it's an interesting um, image of the sun that one gets in St. Thomas Aquinas and in Meister Eckhart and St. Anselm, where they use this argument that if our minds turn towards God, the light of God is so overwhelming, it's dazzling, and our minds can't take in the full power of the divine mind because it's so much greater than us just as we can't gaze at the full light of the sun in the middle of the day because it dazzles and overwhelms our senses um, so it's, there's this constant use of the metaphor of the sun as, as showing that the, the divine light as being, and, and the divine mind as being overwhelmingly greater than our own and dazzling to look upon I mean, that sounds very platonic, again, um, you know, a similar idea if, um, even if, I guess there is a direct link as well. Um, so in his famous analogy of the cave, where he, um, he describes what it is to wake up to true reality, um, the last stage is to step out of the cave and to be dazzled by the sun, um, that the thing which gives light and life, in fact, to everything, um, it's all pervasive and enables one to see but can't quite be seen itself. Um, so that's a very, you know, powerful kind of metaphor. That in, then in monotheism, mm -hmm. I guess, you know, the, the idea that um, the son of sons is a monotheistic take on the older god of Ra, I guess. Yes. Um, that uh, um, the, the sustainer of all things will shine through all things. Um, metaphorically, you know, in all sorts of ways, maybe even in us, but literally in the case of the sun, I suppose that would be understood in that way. Yes, I think for me this was a kind of breakthrough when I saw that it's literal. It's not just symbolic. The sun isn't just a symbol of a divine light which is somehow completely different from the actual light of nature. The actual light of nature is the divine light because otherwise one has a God that says just completely separate from nature. And of course we've grown up with the idea that nature is a mechanical autonomous system and God's at best a kind of optional extra who may have designed it in the first place. 
that's the idea many people have. But I think that um, if we're to have a realistic idea of God and God in nature and nature in God, then the light of the sun is the light of God. Yeah, and, and Barfield's work, um, Owen Barfield's work on metaphor actually supports that because one of the things which he does is look at words um, like light, like breath, spirit, um, and argue, in fact, that what we tend to think of as a metaphysical, uh, metaphorical meaning, um, you know, that the inner light as well as the tangible light, actually, he argues that in this participative mode, um, there was no distinction. Um, so in Hebrew, ruach can be translated both as spirit and breath, um, and we're, te- we're inclined to think, but which is it? Mm. Um, but back then, as it were, there wasn't which is it, they were the both. Mm. Um, but with, I think, the added inflection that to really appreciate the light of the sun is to see the light of the God. Um, it's, uh, again, to give it that real sort of depth, channeling, as you were saying. Mm. Yeah, so we can, we can, get, we can sunbathe, um, and, you know, that gives us a certain sort of a physical... Um, experience, but to really bathe in the sun would be to would be to sort of worship the sun, I guess, mm. um, because it would be opening to the spiritual dimension of the light as well. It's interesting, isn't it, that Christian churches traditionally face east, so that the light of the sun in the morning shines through the east end over the altar of of, of the church. I mean, they're deliberately oriented east because they they deliberately have this solar orientation um, so in that case I suppose that I don't know how much they thought out the theology but it was clearly that the, the, the churches and cathedrals as temples um, have this orientation to the heavens as Stonehenge and megalithic stone temples did they, they were had these solar orientations and long barrows like New Grange um, they tied in the human seasonal and ritual and festival cycle with the life of the sun, which, of course, is the dominant influence on the life of the earth. And uh, that's a form of participation. And, of course, we can still participate in these things through the seasonal festivals, which our main festivals are still related to the seasons of the year. Yeah, I mean, the the immediate one that comes to mind is uh, the Easter Vigil, where... The new flame, the new light is lit, and the candle, and so on. And um, and I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I bet the hymn that's sung as the candle is lit, um, the, uh, I forget the name of it now, but the very famous sort of surgical hymn at that point, um, I bet it includes reference to the sun if mm. we if we had it to hand. Um, but I wonder as well whether um, another side to that um, is how. The sun contrasting with the darkness is really important as well, um, that um, the sun does rise at the east ends of the church, um, but it rises out of a kind of death. Um, and in ancient Egypt, um, that circularity, the journey into the underworld, was identified with the, with the night. Um, mm. and, and also death was identified with journeying into the underworld, which actually wasn't a place of um, death as we would commonly mean it now, you know, no life. Um, it was a place um, of, um, I guess to use a modern term, you might call it archetypal life, um, where you would encounter um, life forces full on and hence deified, um, but that in order then to be able to return to the day, um, to live um, with 
these uh, much more conscious of these forces and these dynamics inside you. So again, your life has kind of grown and expanded as a result. Um, and I think that again, you get echoes of this in Christianity. So you don't just go to Easter um, service on a Sunday morning. You go first to Good Friday, and it's that process of the dying and the rising um, that is the full experience, the full initiation, the, the full kind of awakening. Indeed, uh, the story of Good Friday has darkness falling over the land during the crucifixion, so it explicitly brings in the darkness. But that sounds like a theme for another discussion. OK. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. If you want to hear more of Rupert Sheldrake and Mark Vernon, go to the Science Set Free podcast. And I'll post links to this uh, in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. Now I will close this episode with a track from Love Button's album Eat More Fruit called Cut Myself Free. And to hear more of Love Button's music go to love-button.com or facebook.com forward slash lovebuttonband. You'll find all these links in the program notes on nationalbornalchemist.com. And don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Born Alchemist and on Facebook. So that is the end of the month of March. See you next Sunday in April. Freedom is in the mind. He always reminded me of Hemingway. The way he box with Gertrude Stein all day. Then let you see him weak He did both Yesterday Crazy.